Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is a Lip Media Podcast. You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. At our latest meeting, oh, that's actually not true. Uh, wait, fuck, is it? No, it is true. I'm oh, sorry. I'm like, <laughs> anyway, doesn't matter. Let me start that sentence again. It's the 15th of March, 2019. I'm Simon Copland. And I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about the revolutionary potential of sex. Now while we leave that very exciting topic hanging, because really it sounds so dramatic, uh, we have some super exciting news. You probably will have heard the little uh, clip at the start of the show, the little sting that indicates that we have a new podcast network, which is uh, really, really cool. So Lip Media is an Australian uh, LGBTIQA plus network that uh, runs a few different podcasts. The the best known is probably The Gays Are Revolting, which is a really fantastic podcast where a bunch of gay guys talk about gay stuff. Basically, it's very, very funny and and really great. And they uh, have brought us on board as as the first uh, non uh, lit media produced podcast that they're they're hosting, which is really really cool. Uh, it's very exciting to be a part of the network, and we're hoping it opens up all sorts of opportunities for us to collaborate with them, to reach new people. We're gonna we're we'll see what that brings. I'm really super excited about it. I think it's going to be a really great opportunity, and I really am uh, thankful for them bringing us on board. And I, I really can't wait until we sort of build this collaboration and sort of you know work to make you know it's one of those things about one of the one of the goals we had of this year is sort of make this podcast even bigger and better and stronger and reach out more to more people. And I really think this is going to be a core part of that. Totally. There's just so it's it's kind of easy. Simon and I talk a lot about the fact that it, it's easy to feel a bit like you are just working totally in isolation when you're doing podcasts. Like mm. we sit here, we're not even in the same city. So, you know, we're sitting in our respective uh, houses talking to each other over, over Skype and it can be kind of a, a, a lonely pursuit, I guess. But there are obviously a lot of people around Australia, a lot of queers doing cool podcasting stuff and it's it's super exciting to be part of a community of people doing that that we can uh collaborate with and support we can support each other and and all of that it's it's really cool yeah and and, and in saying that i think i would encourage our listeners to go to the lip media it's l-i-p-p media website because there's some other great uh podcasts on there we just we mentioned the gays are revolting which i've listened to you know there's some some great podcasts on there go and listen to them and we're, we're really excited to be joining up so head to lip media so it's l-i-p-p dot media to find out more about the network and the other podcasts As some listeners may know, each month I host a queer reading group in Sydney called Queer Reading Group Sydney, very imaginatively titled. 
at our latest meeting, we discussed a 1971 essay, I think it's from 1971, by Charles Shively, an American uh, uh, anarchist and queer writer called Cocksucking as an Act of Revolution. I loved the essay and it has some really interesting stuff to, to say about the role of sex in queer politics, so I, I sent it to Simon and we decided to have a chat about it for the podcast. And and to be honest, after I read the essay, I also sent it to J- James and Martin because I loved it so much. Um, so <laughs> it's spreading it yes. around. Great. <laughs> In the article, Shively argues that our most common experience as gays, sex, is also the thing that's least talked about. This occurs because he argues, in quotes, we often accept the straight man's assumption that our sex acts in themselves express subordination, close quotes. Gay males have internalized our culture's fear of sex, Shively argues, stigmatizing our very own sexual practices. This has got us both thinking about the role or lack thereof of sex in modern gay and queer politics. And also, I guess, kind of the fact that we don't talk about sex much on this podcast which is maybe reflective of of some similar issues. We can get into that. How do we think about sex? How do we talk about it? And why has it gone missing from a lot of contemporary queer discourse? At the end of his article, Shively argues, and I'm going to quote a a paragraph, and it'll give you a sense of how fantastic the article is, because it's... It's so great. We must not belittle the interacts between mouth, cock, shit, piss, semen, tongue, and all parts of our bodies. We must magnify these in order to get closer to ourselves and to one another, to expand our love, our gay love, to experience being with, being part of all the parts of ourselves, our bodies, and others. Our love no straight man can define. Simon? Do you think that we belittle sex in queer communities? And if so, why do you think we do that? So the short answer is yes, I think we do. Uh, The first sort of, I was thinking about some experiences I have of this. And the first one I thought of when reading Shively's article was for a few years back, I uh, used to play rugby in a gay rugby team in, in Brisbane and in 2014, so it's not actually, gosh, it's five years back now. It feels not that long ago, but five years ago, um, I played in Sydney in the uh, the uh, Gay Rugby World Cup. Uh, the, um, oh God, I've just gone blank. Well, Bingham, the, the Bingham Cup, which is uh, the sort of every two years is a Gay Rugby World Cup that's held. And it was held in Sydney this year. And so we traveled down to, from Brisbane for it with my team, etc. And... Uh, when you arrived, you went and had to go get registered, and you got everyone got given a um, uh, like a show, like a show bag with stuff in information about it and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and as part of it, there was a a little like safer sex pack that they had given. You know, it's a bunch of gay dudes turning up to a rugby tournament. There was going to be lots of sex happening. Um, so, and part of, you know, in the safer sex pack, there was condoms, there was lube, and there was also a fisting glove. And so I was like, oh great, that's that, that sounds excellent. Uh, the next day, uh, we were catching, we had to get a bus from... So, I feel like people might not know what a fisting glove is. You mean, you mean like a latex, a latex glove? A latex glove that people use for fisting, um, to sort of, you know, you know, protect their hands, I guess, and to protect them from, uh... And cuts from fingernails and things. Yeah, exactly. And so, we had to get a bus to and from the, the, the venue, from our hotel to, to the rugby fields. And the next day, we're on the bus... Uh, going to the rugby fields, and I heard people over, t- you know, talking about this, uh, and people in my people in my team talking about the safer sex pack, and someone was like, 
I just think it's ridiculous that they put a fisting glove in there. It just makes us look like we're all engaged in this weird sex, and uh, you know, we want to, you know, mm, yeah, we're at this sure. stage where we want to, you know, where we want, we're, you know, we're at the stage now where we want people to be thinking that we're normal, you know, and this just makes us all look like we're normal. But someone, and it, someone, like, and literally just, said that. Yes, yeah, something along those lines. I can't remember the sure, exact terms, sure, but yeah, you know, yeah. it was basically saying like. You know, look at this. It makes us look like we're engaged in this weird, freaky, kinky stuff when, you know, we want to look like we're normal now and we're having normal sex like normal people. And it just sort of really, at that point, highlighted to me, like, the sort of dominant... And I think it really was sort of linked to what Shivley was talking about, about the way that we stigmatise particular parts, acts of sex and sort of have this normative understanding of what sex is um, and what it should be. Uh, and th- I think that there was something interesting there about why they reacted so strongly against the act of fisting and why they reacted so strongly against the idea that fisting would be something that gays would be comfortable doing and talking about and providing a fisting glove in a in a sort of safer sex pack. Now, for me, it makes total sense. Like, people fist each other. It's part. It's a way to make that process that that practice safer and more comfortable for people. Why wouldn't you include that? What's wrong with that sort of practice? And what's what is it that we need? You know that we sort of that makes people feel icky about it. Uh, and so I think that mm. it's it's absolutely true that this sort of discourse happens a lot in gay communities, in queer communities in general. And it's it's interesting to think about why that is and why is it that we're not talking about, as, you know, Shivali says, that, you know, it's the thing that connects us most most of the time. You know, it's the thing that we have in most most common, you know, that, you know, it's the, what sort of binds us together in strange kind of ways, even if we're not doing it with each other as individuals. Um, and why aren't we talking sure, about that? Sure, they're still broadly shared experiences. I think exactly, th- yeah. your, your comment about what makes fisting different is a really important one because I think it would be easy to have this conversation and almost like say well this is kind of just the pointy end of respectability politics right like we don't talk about sex because we are keen to be seen as respectable gays (laughs) as part of uh, an an acceptable member of society I guess and that acceptable member of society doesn't do xyz Thing that's deemed unacceptable and I think that that's absolutely true but what I think Shively's essay is encouraging us to think about and I think something that again we probably don't talk about much on the podcast is what specifically about certain sex acts is like makes them taboo in ways that are bound up with gay shame so yeah, that this yep. is not this isn't just about uh, you know, what are our kind of fears of about sex in relation to broad issues of respectability? But like, let's get specific, you know? Yeah. And like, I, I feel like that's the potential of this conversation. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, I mean, it's interesting that he, that it's, it's titled cocksucking as a revolutionary act. And maybe that's a worthwhile act to be looking at in, in our conversation, if you want to get specific, um, because I think that, you know, what he says about the perception of cocksucking as being an act of subordination, I think is actually a really interesting one. Uh, and it also taps into sort of perceptions of being a bottom in gay communities, in gay male communities as well, and how that is p- perceived with particular uh, perceptions of 
uh, effeminity, of being subordinate, of being passive, all those sorts of things. Uh, and I think that that's what he's getting to in when he talks about cocksucking as well. Um, totally. And yeah. how that becomes stigmatized both within broader community, but within the gay community itself as well. Yeah, it's it's funny. It made me think of um, I have this interaction with a, a friend on Twitter every now and again around the use of the word suck, like, you know, such and such a thing sucks, mm-hmm. which I, I actually use quite often. It's it's for whatever reason a kind of go-to phrase for me if I don't like something. Uh, and he frequently points out that the origins of the word or the word being used in that way uh, it's it's actually very similar to like gay as to mean bad that when disco was becoming really big in the 70s disco sucks was a way for opponents so people lots of people hated disco yeah, you know, yeah. anyone in any part of camp, any counterculture to basically say that disco was bad by equating it with gay men huh i did not know that and, at all yeah i mean it sort of makes logical sense right um it, knowing the ways that homosexuality has been equated to being things being bad for like a long time right yeah so so i guess i suppose it just points to the ways that this stuff is so kind of ingrained in everyday language in ways that you know i don't even think about mm-hmm. uh, and I, I don't know what i don't know what you do with that i mean I'm, i i sort of uh, thought about stopping saying suck and I, I I haven't stopped saying it. So, um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, like on that particular point, I think sometimes language moves beyond the point where for it's- For sure, for sure. Where it, where it, but, you know, I think that that, you know, that's a, that's a side note, but I think that, I mean, I think that what's interesting about that for me is about how ingrained- shame around and you and you used the word sort of gay shame the term gay shame earlier which i think is a really valuable one in this instance how much ingrained shame there is around sexual practices within you know we're talking mostly specifically within gay male communities which is where chivalry's article sort of is focused um but i think that that's probably true across queer communities as a whole um oh i think across all people yeah you know in in west in western culture at least uh, but I think it's it's for queer people bound up in all of the other shames associated with like being other, you know, being different. Yeah, absolutely. And so you you know, and and I think that that's an interesting thing about you know, I I often question why it is that sex gets given this shame both in broader community in general in, in sort of you say it's for everybody. You know, why is it that we're so sort of uh, feel ashamed about talking about sex. I know it's a very intimate act and it's a very personal act. And so there's there's that sort of barrier around it associated with it. But it's also an act that everybody, almost everybody engages with. And so what is it about it that leads to such a sort of hushed shameness around it? You know, um, and, and, and in sort of really sort of minor ways and in major ways. So in the minor ways of we just don't talk about it, we don't be like, you know, what did you do last night? Oh, we had a, I had great sex, you know, or... You know, which is such a like, there's like this whole part of our lives that we just sort of hide from from the rest of people, the people in our lives. I, mean, right? I would definitely say that I have cultivated friendships in my life uh, in which I could absolutely say that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's is, probably true. Which is great. Yeah, that's that. Which is great. Um, but also, you know, but then I think there's also the thing that you know, which Shivley gets into, and which which you wanted to get into about the sort of specific acts and how 
there's particular, and this I think is probably true in straight culture as it is as much in in gay culture, maybe not as much, but it's true in those cultures too about you know doing anal in straight culture would be considered quite quite shameful compared to doing not doing anal, and that is something that you wouldn't talk about anywhere near as much. You know that there's the particular acts that end up being considered shameful in some kind of way, or kinky, or dirty, or or whatever it is you want to claim yeah, it to yeah, be. Yeah. And God, there's, I feel like there's so much to unpack here. I'm, I'm, I, I want to go in so many different directions at once. I think it's worth saying, and I absolutely encourage people to to read Shavli's essay. It's it's so much fun. Uh, it's also quite like gross, but but in a way that's uh, designed to provoke in exactly the ways that we're talking about, which is wonderful. And part of the reason it is, and I think this goes to the specifics of shame, and shame's a really complicated idea too. And I, I don't know how much we'll have the the time to unpack some some of the stuff around that here. But uh, Shively talks a lot about, like, bodily fluids mm-hmm. in his essay. So he talks about cum and shit and piss and uh, spit and, and, the, and about those things as being a source for shame, I guess, and, and disgust and, and why we kind of don't talk about some of this stuff. And I, I almost feel like, I mean... <laughs> I feel like we try to avoid a bit getting too uh, theory-y sometimes for, for good reasons, but it, it reminds me a lot of uh, Julia Kristeva's uh, Abjection, work on Abjection. That You're going to have to go into that, because I haven't actually read that, so... Sure. Uh, oh, yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, neither have I. I've, like, like a lot of these sorts of things, I've I've only read stuff... I've read writing about it, but yep. she's a... Uh, pretty sure she's French, uh, a French philosopher who, who writes about this idea that gross bodily fluids and uh, so things things like shit and piss and like vomit and stuff gross us out because they basically remind us of our own mortality, that they, they remind us of the kind of gross weirdness of being a person and it mm-hmm. puts us in this like kind of engaging with that puts us in this weird liminal space in between the ways we have to think about ourselves as well, not as those sort sort of organic. Like we can't be thinking of ourselves as organic, gross, decomposing, shitting people all the time, <laughs> or else we just couldn't function in the world. But that stuff sits in this space that's both uh, an object of disgust, but also fascination because it does provoke those feelings of, uh, yeah, I guess confronting our 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 bodiliness, our our mortality. Yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, that's going to make me think about. A lot next time I go to the toilet. Um, <laughs> but, like, I, you know, I think that... I mean, I, I think that's interesting because, you know, when it comes to gay sex, and we're going back to that, it's sort of what is the thing... You know, what's the most extreme, I guess? And sometimes it's useful to actually look at the most extreme. And I think this is what Shivley does quite well in this article, is to look at shit as the most extreme example or considered the most extreme example and to be like, I just suddenly struck me that like this is our uh, first episode with the new podcast network. We might have new people coming on board, and we're having we're doing an episode about shit sex. Yeah, well, let's you know. Well, look, welcome to board. Queers, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but I think that that's you know, I think it's super interesting because that is the thing that makes 
you know, I, I have no desire to be engaged in scat sex, right? And that's 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 fine. I have no... I, I also have literally zero judgments of anybody who does. But I'm e- intrigued as to my own repulsive, re, you know, the thing that makes me repulsed by it, the thing that you yeah, know, yeah, really yeah, makes totally. me feel icky, abo- icky by it. And I know that I, I'm not just... I really am not someone who's into farting, for example. Like, you know, a lot of people really love fart jokes and, you know, people... And it just does not... <laughs> there's something about it that just, like, that just doesn't like appeal to me at, at all in the slightest, you know, it's just not my thing. Um, and there's something I'm intrigued. I'm just trying to question you know, my, myself about why it is that, that shit, you know, you know, and I, I think this is a challenging thing and, it, and I'm not saying I'm going to go and try scat tomorrow and, and, you know, you know, push myself to that back and report back. But you know, what is it there about that kind of stuff that makes me feel repulsed compared to someone coming on me, which I have no problem with. You know, what's the, you know, what's the difference of the stuff that comes out of the dick compared to the butt, you know, that, um, that makes me feel particular kinds of ways. And, you know, I think that there's, a, I mean, it's interesting what you're saying. I'm sorry, I've just forgotten her name about what, um, uh, Julia Kristeva. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, there's something very interesting about like those bodily functions that you sort of have to do to your, for your body to continue functioning, but you kind of, we kind of hide away from them. We sort of put them, we put them in a closed toilet where nobody else ever goes because it's something you do. You sort of that you, you get rid of, you get, you sort of get rid of that bodily function. You don't talk to anybody else about it. It's gone. It's just something you have to do, but you don't want to sort of engage with in society. Uh, and I think that that's super interesting in thinking about how we, it's not even just, and, I, and maybe this is what coming back to, it's not even just about shaming particular sex acts. It's actually shaming particular bodily acts. You know, we're shaming, mm. we, you know, we have shame over things that our body, that everybody does. Like li- literally everybody shits. Like there's nothing that sort of gets you out of that. Um, <laughs> and, but we still have this immense shame bag. over it, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But even if, even someone with a colostomy bag is still shitting. There's still stuff is still yeah. coming out of their body. Yes, that's but true. They're just still doing it in a, in a different way. There's still an immense shame about that to an extent, you know, I think, you know, you know, you know, that you don't, you know, I think there's an ad, um, uh, I can't remember what it's ad for where it's someone's, they're around a table. I think it's for like life insurance and, Uh, and someone's like, someone's at the table and the woman goes, I'm going to go take a big dump and the, uh, and then. Someone's like, oh, now that we're being honest, let's talk about life insurance or something like that. But the the woman saying, I've got to go take a shit is like, everyone's like, oh my God, who would say that? Um, and it's really interesting because it's such a natural reaction. Like if someone did that at our dinner table, it would be kind of like, that's a bit weird. Why are you saying that? But there's literally just a bodily function that everybody's doing, that everybody does at some point in time during the day. I mean, I think that the sexual element is relevant though, in that, like it kind of ties this specifically to queerness, given, mm-hmm. given that's the the framework that we've that that's the framework in which queerness sits is is one of like being related to to sex and and sexuality, and so it's not just about. I mean, I think I think you're right in that we do have shame broadly around this stuff, but I think it's also like. To go back to fisting, for example, like that's something that really freaks a lot of people out and grosses yep. a lot of gay men out, as as evidenced by the conversation you overheard on the uh, at the at the rugby thing. Uh, so, I mean, to some degree, I think it's it's like a matter of degrees, or or or, or the specific thing that that kind of that kind of freaks you out. I think Shively argues quite convincingly that it's about 
the sort of vulnerability that comes with being like a bit gross in in like with other people in in what like the, the the kind of act of having to overcome the ways you feel gross about it is a potential provides the potential for intimacy and connection in and of itself that that being it offers an opportunity to be vulnerable with someone else i guess mm-hmm. and he he quite he quite beautifully describes these encounters that he's had where he might have been a bit grossed out by something but then the the guy that he was with made it okay and that that became a really uh beautiful point of connection which i thought was i thought was really lovely and i think that's interesting in our sort of modern climate as well around the capacity to, I don't know, have changing perspectives around what you're into. And I think that, I mean, even just in the terms of like so much of the sort of born this way narrative, I think has been filtered out into sexual preferences as well, not just into into like gen you know i'm gay and straight it's like oh i'm i just have these particular sexual preferences and it's just the way i I am and there's there's something about that's very nice about his writing about sort of pushing ourselves to want to to try you know to try new things or to 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 see the potential comfort in enjoying different things that we are initially grossed out about and questioning why you're grossed out about them to an extent I, well, this I is think- something we've talked about on the podcast before, like uh, way, way, way back in one of our first episodes when we read um, Adrian Rich's Compulsory right, Heterosexuality. Yep. Uh, we talked about, yeah, like re- rethinking our capacity to to change our sexual... Well, I mean, it's, it's just a weird thing to say outside of the context of that conversation because it'll sound a bit... Yeah, it might sound a bit weird, but like the capacity to change our sexualities mm-hmm. and make active choices about... Uh, how we engage with our own sexuality, and which is a bit of a taboo in in queer contemporary queer cultures. Yeah, and I think that if if I think across my sexual life, I think that I certainly have done that. That you know the preferences that I had when I was eighteen are very different to what I have now, and part of that sure. is due to experience, and part of that is due to like being exposed to new things, and then the first time I'm being exposed to that thing, being grossed out by it, and then becoming more comfortable with it as I'm exposed to it more. And it, it, whether that's just exposed to it through discourse or through media or through porn or whatever, until the point where you get comfortable trying it, you know, those sorts of things, you know, that uh, I think does happen. And I think we probably all engage in it in, to some extent, or maybe we, maybe some people don't, I don't know. Um, but, you know, that that I think we all have that potential and and there's a lot of stuff around like racism in in queer communities around sexual sexual preferences and saying well maybe you need to challenge why it is that you're not that you're into you're not into Asians in you know in air quotes you know it maybe it's not just a sexual preference maybe it's because you've got like a racist you know you're sort of it's you know underpinned in sort of racist ideas and sure, sure. you know i think it's in, it's interesting even very that, subconscious ones you even know. yeah exactly very sub, you know exactly and i think that it's interesting that we challenge it around that um and it's nice to see shivley's article and saying well, we can we can sort of become more comfortable in in other practices that we might consider disgusting uh we might consider really gross or icky or, or something along those lines yeah and that that opens up the potential for kinds of intimacy that are only accessible through queerness essentially yeah absolutely i mean i think yeah. i think maybe that's where we you know i think we're probably going to have to come to an end of this conversation soonish um and maybe one of the questions we should ask is you know 
the article is titled Cocksucking as a Revolutionary Act, but I'm not sure if we've spoken really about what he means by that. Like, how is cocksucking a revolutionary act? What does it actually, what does that actually mean? Yeah. So, this is such a big, yeah, like I said, I feel like there are so many directions that this conversation could go. And maybe it's, we, I feel like we said this at the end of a lot of conversations, but it's something we could certainly revisit. Because I think in some ways it goes to the discussion we've been having in the last few episodes around the revolutionary potential of, uh, if not individual action, then kind of small scale action, right? Like, what does it mean? It's all well and good for us to sit here and say it, it, it opens up our sexual horizons or our personal horizons or whatever to explore new ways of having sex or thinking about sex in different ways. But is that purely about us growing as people or does that have a broader political meaning? And I, I, I can't help but like imagine getting caught in the same conversations that, that we've had recently yeah, coming up against the same challenges, I guess, of yeah, like yeah. how do those things relate to each other. And for me, I mean, I, I would say, I, I guess, the same sorts of stuff I've been saying recently that I think that individuals or, you know, couples or, or groups kind of engaging with their own vulnerability, engaging with uh, uh, our potential for compassion and connection with other people does open up really interesting and exciting political possibilities at a, at a higher level that, I mean, that might sound really, I don't know, naive or cheesy or whatever, but I don't know. I think like engaging explicitly with compassion and vulnerability, which I think ultimately is, is what this stuff is about, does have a lot of political potential. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that I would hold the same position that I've held in the last couple of weeks, which is, I agree with you to an extent, um, but not to the full extent. And I think that that's, that's, I think that there is value both personal and political for exactly what you're talking about. And there's value, um, yeah, I, I agree with you largely. I think that what's interesting about the piece is, and the and the engagement with cocksucking in particular, is that I think that, you know, he starts off by talking about the perception of cocksucking as being, a, you know, a role of subordination, that you are... That you know, and that that is the kind of thing that is stigmatized. That you know, you you become the subordinate role. You're the cocksucker. You're the in in gay male communities. You're the effeminate. You're the um, you know, the passive one, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that you know, and he talks about the sort of the 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 value that we play that society places in 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 the powerful and the dominant and the masculine, etc. And that cocksucking sort of subverts that and the embrace of cocksucking. In particular, it's not just the act, it's the embracement, you know, the embracement of it, the sort of being, you know, sort of owning cocksucking uh, can actually be quite a subversive act in that it is, you know, you're not, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of ch challenging that sort of narrative, I guess, to an extent. And I think that, um, yeah, you you're looking. Well, no, well, I feel like there's an important kind of qualifier here because I think that often this is talked about particularly in gay male sexual spaces, like like the, the idea of the power bottom, right, yeah, is yeah. this idea that, like, top doesn't equal powerful and bottom doesn't equal... Pat like, yeah, top doesn't equal... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, dominant and, yep. and bottom doesn't equal submissive. submissive. But oh, I read this really great essay recently that I 
kind of articulated some things I've been thinking about for a while. I, I'm, if I can remember it, I'll, if I can figure out what it was, I'll, I'll post a link in the show notes, but it's every possibility that I will not be able to remember <laughs> about how that's kind of a cop-out, like that, that the power bottom is this sort of ridiculous idea that gay men have created in order to feel okay about getting fucked. That rather than being comfortable with being submissive or being comfortable with being more passive or more quote unquote feminine, it's like, no, uh, we're power bottoms. We're actually in control, even though we're getting fucked. And like, obviously the questions about like who's in control is complicated. I'm not saying that's straightforward, but I think there's a lot to that, that it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe I want to you don't need to reframe the entire, you don't need to reframe the entire debate. To say, I'm not saying you're doing this, but I think a lot of pe- a lot of gay yeah, men yeah, do. Yeah. You don't need to reframe the entire discussion to to say that uh, getting fucked can be a, a, a dominant act. You can just kind of go, no, actually, it's okay to be submissive. Yeah, sometimes. yeah, and I think maybe I want to, or all the time, you know. Yeah, and so maybe maybe I should clarify what I was trying to say in that I'm not saying that it's what he's saying is that you know, cocksucking is a you know is an act of dominance i think what i'm trying to say is that he's subverting the narrative that that it's necessarily a a negative thing to be the submissive one or that it can be both so it can be both things it can be you know there can be more than just being it can be more than than just being it's more than being a submissive actor in the sexual practice but i think also you can just argue exactly what you're arguing, which is that it is totally acceptable to be submissive or to be, you know, to, to, to be, be effeminate. And there's nothing wrong with that. And sort of the, the powerful act of, you know, and I use powerful sort of funnily there, but the, the act of cocksucking to be able to, and to embrace the position of cocksucking rather than to see yourself as sort of seeing that as a negative position or being, seeing that as a negative act that you're engaging with. I think that's the, that's the powerful part of the article in terms of, you know, challenging the notions of it is, but you know, yes, it's you know, it's potentially submissive, but that is an okay thing, and that is great. And I think going back to the point of the revolutionary potential of that, I think that there's value in that act in itself, in the in the process of you know embracing that. I think there's also value in the public discourse of it that he is engaging with, and I think that that is something that is not occurring in queer discourse at all at the moment. And I think that's a major issue where we're just not talking about sex at all. Uh, So, you know, big shout out to Brendan McLean's House of Air video, which we talked about a while back, because it's doing exactly that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I would love to see more of that. You know, I'd love, I really would love to see more of that because it is, everything is so devoid of sex. And I think that, I think that, you know, I agree with your perspective that these acts, these individual acts can be powerful. I think they're more powerful when we start talking about them publicly and talking about the fact that gays fuck, that queers fuck, and that that but is that's like what an I'm, important thing. Yeah, sure. But I guess like that for me is all bound up together. You yeah. Know? Like I'm not talking about just the, the individual sex acts, I'm talking about the communal potential of them yeah exactly and i and i and i think that we we i think we end up agreeing um there because i think yeah we're just coming at it from different directions but yeah there's got to be a communal potential of it and i'm not saying you know and that's not just about having group sex it's about like uh the communal potential of talking about sex of talking about the the you know the importance of sex and being comfortable doing something like what brendan mclean did which is to you know get on screen and get shat on. Um, I'm not sure I'm that, you know, I'd be that person, but, you know, I think it's great that he did that. I think it's incredible that he did that. And I think that that's kind of an important thing. 
As we talk about most episodes at this point, we have a Patreon page and we would love it if you like the show and want to support the show. Uh, if you could sign up and become a patron there, patrons get all sorts of extras and bonuses. I think it's if you if you sign up for $5 a month, you get a bonus episode every month, uh, which is cool. We've been having a fun time making those and, and putting those together. If you would like to get in touch with us or make a comment or say something about the show, give us some feedback, you can do so in uh, a bunch of different ways. You can email us at queerspodcast at gmail.com or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at queerspodcast. And we both have our own personal social media pages. Ben is on Twitter at Ben C. Riley. I'm on Twitter at Simon Copland and on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. You can find the podcast in all the normal places. It's on our website, queerspodcast.com. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on, you know, most kind of podcast platforms seem to have it. Uh, Review and rate us if you're on any of those that let you do so because it helps other people find us. And finally, thank you to Lit Media, uh, the podcast network that we've just joined. We're really, really excited to have joined up. And if you would like to find out more about Lit Media, what's their website? That's lip.media. They have a .media domain. It's very cool. Fancy. Uh, and tell a friend. The best way for people to find out about us is through word of mouth. I know I find out about the best podcasts through talking to people about them. Like, I, when I'm not listening to this kind of podcast, I'm always listening to true crime podcasts. And I just discovered like a whole Oh my bunch. God, really? Yeah, I love true crime podcasts. I just discovered- <sighs> Oh my God, I do not understand true crime at all. Oh, we'll have to have a conversation about this at a different time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I have become increasingly obsessed. Um, but you know, I discovered those through talking to friends about them. Other friends who are obsessed with true crime podcasts. So I feel like that's the best way that people find podcasts. So if you like our podcast, please tell other people um, because they might like it just as much as you do. Because there are so many podcasts out there, right? Like, I feel like if you're not getting recommendations from friends, like, how are you going to find anything? You know, how do you filter the stuff out, you know, and so you don't end up listening to just crap all the time because you're like trying something new and it ends up being terrible. Thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs> Sorry, we've we've switched up the way that we do our our outro. We we swapped names on on the things that we usually it was read. Ben's idea. Finding, it was my idea. I'm glad we did it. But as you can tell, we are not used to reading it out this way. And apparently, you take away any support structures that we have to doing the podcast, and we fall apart. So <laughs> that's just for transparency so about why that's happening. But thank you for listening, <laughs> really. Uh, and we will we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>